Mr. Quill. Mr. Quill, what's going on? Old films, Mr. Spencer. Classics, you might say. I've saved them for years, bits of them. We used to run them like this in the old days, but not for years we haven't done it. Now it seems like old times once more. Welcome to Goonpod. If you were listening last week, you'll have heard Chris Diamond and I talking about the 1957 comedy film The Smallest Show on Earth. The film starring Peter Sellers, Margaret Rutherford, uh, Bill Travers, Virginia McKenna, Bernard Miles and Francis DeWolf. Oh, and Leslie Phillips, of course. Mustn't forget Leslie. So this is the second part of that conversation where we knuckle down and we stop talking about Heavens Above and cinemas in general and our memories of cinema when we were children, and we start talking uh, in more detail about the actual film, The Smaller Show on Earth, and uh, it's a very enjoyable conversation. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, let's drop into where we're talking about uh, the conceit of a film within a film. The films that are shown in the Bijou, uh, you, you, you know, the, the grand, it's, it's certainly implied that they are showing the latest Hollywood films. Yeah. Uh, that's why everybody's queuing up. Yeah. But in the Bijou, they just have to show what they've got. Uh, things that Quill is, is kept or is getting sent through that are cheap. Yeah. Uh, and the... We have killer... <laughs> killer Riders of Wyoming. <laughs> <laughs> the Mystery of Hell Valley and Devil Riders of Parched Point. Yeah. But Killer Riders of Wyoming... I think I'm right, or is it Mystery of Hell Valley? Well, one of the two of them. The second desert film, the first desert film, sorry, where they where old Tom turns the heat up, is effectively you see two characters clawing their way through the desert. And it's, of course, it's been shot specifically for, to be used as a film within a film. Yeah. It's not a real film. Yeah. Because you would have to pay for that. And the two actors that are there... One is Kenneth Copley. Peter, uh, Peter, Peter Copley. Peter Copley, sorry. Yeah. Who you, you would recognise from a million different things. But the other one is Count Mario Fabrizi. <laughs> yeah. And you only see a glimpse of him, but you it do. was the moustache. Yes. So as soon as I saw the moustache, I'm like, oh, there's Count Mario Fabrizi. Yes. A textbook seller's hanger-on. He was. Died fast. He, he was a Hancock hanger-on as well. Mm-hmm. But but I think it's just all part of that crowd. But uh, I used to love it when Mario Fabrizi turned up in films. Well, right, that's the thing because I'm watching the the first film, um, as you say that they that that they show at the Bijou. Is, yeah. Um, what's it called? Um, uh, Killer Riders Killer of Wyoming. Killer Riders of Wyoming. And, and, and it, when I'm when I'm watching this film, I'm thinking, is is that an actual film? 
Is it? Surely yeah. not. And I wasn't sure. And then the second film is is um, the mystery of Hell Valley. And I, again, yeah. at, right at the beginning, I'm thinking, is that is that an actual film? And then I saw Mario Fabrizio. I said, no, it's not. Then nope. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Peter Copley, I was I was like, is that that can't be Peter Copley? I thought, but uh, but Peter Copley, uh, uh, he looked the same age his entire life. You know, he looked the sort of bald, straggly hair and all that. So uh, I, I was a bit put off by that but there's no doubt there's no mistaking Mario Fabrizio well can I just mention Peter Copley or Copley 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 Copley, yep. Copley. Um, I'm re-watching Get Back oh yeah which is, which is on it's second viewing is even better I think okay, the okay, first viewing God. okay that's a bit of the Beatles isn't it oh <laughs> uh, yes <laughs> and, they're in there somewhere and there's a bit well is it, is it two weeks in the life of the Beatles something like that um, sure. Not really a fly in the wall documentary because they've got the cameras more or less stuck up their hooters, but it's, yeah, yeah, it's, this is a, it's a fly very, on the yeah everything Ringo's nose, yeah. <laughs> um, but at one point, because um, it, it it shows you, you know, as they come in every morning for rehearsals, and you know, it's all sort yeah. of, it's all very yeah, morning, 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 you know, more, cup of tea, morning, morning. that sort of thing. All right, yeah. And at one point you see George Harrison, he's talking to, I think it's the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg and Ringo. And George right. is talking about this television program that he'd seen the night before. Right. And it was uh, an episode, it was the first episode of the, the new series of um, a TV sh- a series called Out of the Unknown. Oh, right, yeah. And he was very taken by this, George, and he's quite animated telling the other two about this this, <laughs> this program. Um <laughs> And then he talks about the the program that came after it was a bit crap. It was a bit crap, uh-huh. you know. Um, but it did actually inspire him because uh, it had some waltz music in it, and it inspired him on that on that front. But no, he was very, very, very much. Uh, he was sort of describing what happened in this sci-fi uh-huh. show, right? Now the reason I right. mentioned that is because Peter Copley uh-huh. starred in that episode. <laughs> okay. So now he's now Beatles canon. Yes, but he already was. Hunter Davis will be writing stuff about. But he already was Beatles canon, because oh. if you scroll back a few years, in 1965, right, in the film Help. Oh, okay. Do you know that scene when John Lennon says, "Julie, you're not getting anywhere, are you, Julie?" Any days yet, sir. <laughs> that was Peter Copley when wow. he was trying to get a ring off Ringo's finger and he couldn't do it. And he, he was uh, he came in for uh, uh, a, a withering comment you, from Lennon. Do you know, I, I scanned Peter Copley's... Copley, Copley. Mm. Uh, his credits, which are innumerable, to see where he might have coincided more closely with Sellers. Mm. And it, it's almost... <laughs> It's almost a feat in itself that he didn't. <laughs> I don't know how he managed it. I don't know how he could have been active and very active in film and television from the war right up until 1980 and not be in anything. <laughs> it almost makes me wonder if he had some sort of grudge against him. <laughs> How could you possibly not have been in it? Anyway. I know. But Mario Fabrizio, of course, if people don't know his name, you have certainly seen him. Yes. Uh, 
I think Mario Fabrizio's finest hour uh, on film and television. It's in, I think it's in the uh, Hancock episode where it's the big night when they're going out. They go to the laundrette and Sid, <laughs> Sid and, and Tony and Hancock go to the laundrette to wash their shirts, which Mrs. Cravat hasn't done for them. Mm. And uh, Hancock is delighted by the... He's never been to a laundrette before, and he's so excited at seeing this washing going around. And a, a character comes in in a white suit and says, can I, can I put my shirt into your machine? And it's Mario Fabrizzi. And he says... Uh, he says, yeah, okay, there's other ones. And he immediately takes his jacket off and takes his shirt off and puts it in the machine and sits in his vest reading the paper. <laughs> and, he's, and he's so stringy and thin that uh, Hancock turns and nudges Sid James and says, Jane Mansfield's old man there. <laughs> well, hey, was that an inspiration for Nick Kamen 20, 30 years later? Oh, <laughs> maybe it was. Mm. I never thought of that. <laughs> um, anyway. Mario so- Fabrizzi, by the way, and I'm trying to remember... I think I've got this right. You know, because Salas used to film everything. Yeah, home home movies coming Mm. up up the wazoo. Um, Mm. I'm sure that there's... Because Mero Fabrizi was a close friend and would often be around at Salas' house, as would, you know, Lodge and Stark and Milligan, I suppose. Um, But I'm sure that there were a series of of sketches or short films that Salas filmed um, which ostensibly starred Mero Fabrizi, if you know what I mean. That's right. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, he was technically he's described often as he's described as a photographer. I don't know. I mean, I've no idea what capacity is. He was a you know a professional photographer. He must have done something to earn a living rather than just hang around sailors and Hancock. Well, I mean, maybe not. But uh, but he's, he's he's described as sort of in an erstwhile way as a photographer. Mm. So maybe that's how he came into there. But it's always, it's anyway, the point is, it's just always nice when people like that turn up. And was it's, was it's, he in Heavens Above then? Because I didn't notice him. Oh, I don't know. I'm sure he must have been. No. And I, I'm sure he is, actually. I, I just, I can, I'm sure he is. Mm. Uh, lots of, but as you see, everybody's in Heavens Above. Joan Hickson is in Heavens Above. Jo, jo, the character she's playing in Heavens Above, I like to think that the lady, sorry, I like to think <laughs> that the, the elderly lady that she played in Clockwise, um, yes. 20 years yeah, later yeah. was the same character <laughs> about the sherry, the the sherry is, glasses Joan Hickson often played that was the character that she played yeah 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 that sort of uh, I you know a sort of dotty old woman or 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 at least a, a sort of scatty kind of like uh, another another exceptional performance of hers is in the uh, carry on girls no oh, yes <laughs> but she's one of the she's one of the sisters you know the family. The, another one being the the brilliant uh, Hilda Barry, who 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 are just funny, just sitting in repose with pointy glasses on. <laughs> but anyway, uh, the smallest show on earth is actually different in that respect because it doesn't have this sort of constellation of uh, of character actors in it. No, it doesn't. It has the inevitable Stringer Davis, of course. Because that was a contractual requirement mm. of Margaret Rutherford's. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Because for the uninitiated, uh, Stringer Davis was Margaret Rutherford's husband. Mm. Uh, he plays, in this, he plays one of the other, the only other really talking uh, partner of Francis uh, DeWolf in the, in the cinema. Uh, and he ha- and what's extraordinary about Stringer Davis is that he had actually been an actor 
for a long time when he met Margaret Rutherford because he's not a good actor. <laughs> Singer Davis. He's okay. But he managed to have survived for years, presumably in yeah, rep. I, I don't think I've, like that. I don't think I've ever seen him on screen for more than two or three minutes at a time, so I can't really judge if he's a good actor or not, if you know what I mean. The longest he ever appears in anything is in the Marple, Miss Marple films. Oh, okay. The MGM Miss Marple films. Yeah. Uh, because he's sort of partnered off with, you know, he's Mr. Stringer, right. who helps. And, and he's in that probably the most of anything. But in other respects, he's always just a big part because... Margaret Rutherford just wanted her husband to be there. They were very close, yes. uh, which is fine, yeah. you know, and he, he doesn't do any harm. The, the only other the only other couple in that regard, I think, which was not so successful, was Arthur Lowe and his wife. Mm. Uh, because Arthur Lowe, his wife apparently, was a terrible harridan of women. Uh who made his life a misery by many accounts uh, and insisted that she be in everything that he was in. Uh, the problem being that she was so bad that nobody wanted to cast her and therefore Arthur Lowe missed out on quite a lot of work. Uh, you, the, the only time you really notice her is she plays, uh, she appears every now and again in Dad's Army All right. as Godfrey's sister Dolly. Oh, right. You know, Godfrey's always, re yes. always referring to my sister Dolly. Yes. And very occasionally she appears. And that's Arthur Lowe's wife. But you're not going to tell me she appears in Oh Lucky Man or If. But if, if, if he's in it, she's there somewhere. <laughs> God, right. But the most, the most egregious thing about it was uh, late, in later years, uh, in, his later, in his later years, mm. Arthur Lowe's later years, there was a lot of interest in them going to Hollywood because they liked people like uh, Leo McKern and James Mason, people like that, uh, for these, you know, for big character parts. And Arthur Lowe and his wife, but they didn't want his wife, so he missed out on most of them. So his career would have been much more international, uh, international law if it hadn't been for his awful wife. And the worst example I, I, I understand is uh, when Warren Beatty went to remake Heaven Can Wait. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know if you've seen. It's, no. It's, it's, it's good fun. It's good film. Mm. You know, he plays, Warren Beatty plays the part of, you know, he's dead and he has, you know, whatever. He comes back as somebody else and has to convince Jack Warren that he has actually who he is and make things right and so forth. Hmm. Uh, and in the original uh, version, I think it was Claude Rains that played the part. Right. But in the remake, in the 70s remake, which, by the way, was nominated for Best Picture. So I believe, yeah. Uh, Warren Beatty wanted Arthur Lowe to but play damn. the part of the, you know, the sort of spectral guidance part. And he wanted to play it, but they wouldn't cast his wife. <laughs> so she told him to turn it down, and James Mason played it. Jeez. That's a downer. Yeah. <laughs> you imagine we Arthur watching the Oscars <laughs> thinking, <laughs> thinking, yes, well, like, uh, thanks, love, the cocoa's ready. Dallion. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, 
Back to the smaller show on you. Hmm. Margaret Rutherford puts in another amazing performance. She's fantastic. She was an exceptional uh, character. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here's a trivia question for you. Hmm. And for the listeners, write in. Hmm. What is the link between Margaret Rutherford and with Neil and I? I'll tell you after the show, and people can write in. <laughs> <laughs> Just give me a moment to try and think if I know the answer or could guess the answer to this. It's pretty obscure, but it's there. Uh, okay. All right, you tell, tell me after. Tell me after. Listeners, please. I'll tell you after. Write in. Yep. Um... No, but she. I love the fact that there's this tension between, not sexual tension, I hate to wear, but tension between no. her and Quill. Mm. Um, and both of them, in, yeah. both of them independently go to uh, Bill McKenna and say, <laughs> "Can you do something about the other one?" And he suggests yeah. sacking the person. Yes, and they're appalled. <laughs> they're appalled. <laughs> no, no, just say something to say something rude to them. To upset yeah, just them. do. It. It's really interesting because it's it 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 it's it sort of a ref. It, I think it's a sort of reference to their age, in a way, and their background, mm. which is say something rude to them because obviously I can't. Yeah, because that's not the sort of thing I would do. <laughs> but you could do it. You look common. <laughs> oh, just before you go, I think I ought to tell you, Mister Spencer. That unless something is done about Mr. Quill, I am not prepared to continue in my present position. Oh? I can no longer tolerate his insulting and unseemly behaviour. Well, uh, what are you suggesting, Mrs. Fazakley? That I should give him the uh, sack? Sack, Mr. Quill? Sack, Mr. Quill? Oh, I'm afraid that would be quite out of the question, on account of the projection equipment, you know. Nobody else could possibly understand it. In fact, in 1937, when Mr. Quill had to go and have his appendix out and the late Mr. Spencer called in another projectionist to take over, it was only three days before he had to have his appendix out. Oh. No, no. No, I merely wondered whether you would say something rude or uh, unpleasant. You have that awful old eye ganging round this place. What do you suggest I do? Sacker? Sack? Mrs. Fitzakerly? I don't think you properly appreciate the position, Mr. Spencer. Mrs. Fazakerly's been here since the silent days. She used to play the piano. She's the only one what knows how this place runs. Sack, Mrs. Fazakerly? She'll be wanting to sack old Tom next. I see. What you really mean is you just want me to say something rude and uh, unpleasant to her. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And of course, the the lovely thing is uh, when they come clean and they tell them, you know, they tell them what the plan is, but they're going to open the cinema. They independently volunteer, Mrs. Mrs. Fazakley and Quill. Uh, so sort of Quill says he'll give up drinking for the duration. Yes. And then Mrs. Fazakley is is just delighted, but and then everybody's pals. Yeah. Because somebody's sort of given way, and now they're all a team, and it's, it's sort of it's it's <laughs> if I can make the single most tenuous comparison in the history of broadcast, it's a bit like this the 
US Indianapolis scene in Jaws. <laughs> Where Mrs. Fazakley and Quill and everybody, they all become a team from that point oh. forward. <laughs> Jesus. You see? You see? It's, I'm telling you, Mrs. Fazakley and Percy Quill yeah. is exactly the same as Quentin Hooper. <laughs> <laughs> Spielberg didn't just fucking pull this shit out of his ass, you know. No, clearly not. The, well, anyway, the, the friendship, the friendship, or the the laying aside of tensions, mm. is best exemplified by the the scene where they're all watching a silent film when the cinema's closed. Yes, it's a beautiful scene. I mean, it's a genuinely beautiful scene, and it's it's very interesting as well that it was included. For for a couple of reasons. One is it must have cost them money, mm-hmm. because it's the it's the instance where the where they do use a real film yes. uh, coming through their eye, uh, which they must have had to license, you know. Uh, so they've they've clearly decided that it's important. But in, in storytelling terms, it's it's not it's really you could do with you know you could see how you could do without it because they've already established that they're dedicated to the cinema and that they are wedded to it and they want it to succeed and they're upset that it's been closed and now they're all part of a team and they're going to move on. You know, yeah. you could see why you could do without it. And the fact that they've decided to include it and spend money on it, which therefore you would you would feel they would be saying to, in the editing process, we're not losing that. Mm. Uh, I think it's uh, is just an interesting, just an interesting little factoid about it. And they watch it, and as you say, uh, Mrs. Fazakali is playing the piano uh, to accompany it, which for the the junior audience used to happen. Silent films would be played, and somebody would be a live pianist would accompany it. Yeah, that so she's of course she's the pit pianist, doesn't she? As well as being cashier and bookkeeper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, A job that was a job that was done by many. Uh, Anthony Burgess's father did that. Uh, played oh, piano right. for silent cinema. Yeah. Okay. And uh, old Tom is sitting, and they, they capture a wonderful shot. And I wonder how much footage they went through to get it, because old Tom is sitting in the stalls holding the cat, and the cat is staring up at Tom. Hmm. It's, you know, it's looking directly at him, and a sort of head back, sort of comfortable. You know, it's almost as if the cat is delighted yeah. that everything is back to normal. And then, of course, you cut to the most important part of it, which is uh, uh, Bill and McKenna come into the projection booth and Quill is watching it with tears in his eyes mm-hmm. and says, you know, it's just like, it feels like old times. And I suppose the, the, the point of it is it gives an emotional heart to the relationship for Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna to the totality of the kinema, the building, but also the history and the people in it. So that, you know, it's 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 not now something that can be easily shoved off for, for some money. There has to be a positive outcome now. Yes. Because this is, now you get, now you at least it's demonstrated. It's not just because they've got nowhere else to go. It really matters. And it's a lovely scene. It's, it's beautifully played. And it's a lovely choice of 
film as well. Uh, because, of course, it's a man saying goodbye to a woman uh, and then he disappears. And, you know, you know, so it's all about parting and longing. It's it's uh, it's very it's very suitable. And and of course the the actress in that film, <clears throat> Alma Taylor, yeah, she turns up in the audience uncredited. She's she's uncredited in the audience, which is mm. a lovely little uh, touch. Yeah. A lovely little thing, yeah, lovely touch. I, I love as well. Frank, Frank Launders in the audience as well, apparently. Okay, I, I I love as well a nice little sort of character touch, a lovely little sort of sweet little moment is when the the the, the first showing where yeah. Quill's off the booze, and, yeah. he, and he only makes one mistake and he goes down and he's delighted <laughs> by the fact and he leaves. Yeah, yeah, he's got his coat and hat and coat on and he leaves the cinema and you see him just do a little skip. It was a little skip. And he flaps his arms against the side. <laughs> yes, it's a beautiful moment. Oh, uh, good night, Mrs. Spencer. Oh, good night, Mr. Quill. Good night, Mrs. Spencer. Good night. Good night. Good night, Mrs. Spencer. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Well, um, only one breakdown tonight. No one. And you wonder in these circumstances when you hear uh, directors, even people like Kubrick, who talk about uh, uh, again how sellers would inhabit a part. You wonder how much that's been sellers has decided to do that. Mm. You know, uh, I, I mean, I don't know whether there was obviously I don't know whether it was script. I don't know whether it was Basil Dearden's idea, but when you I mean Kubrick is a good example for example when he was making uh, Lolita he allowed uh, Sellers to improvise hmm. uh, and he explained later that you know he, he would allow, he didn't mind actors improvising during rehearsals to try and get an idea of who their characters were but not during performance because they, they weren't very good at it hmm. but he felt that Sellers just inhabited the part so fully I keep on saying habited, but you know, he was so invested and lived it so much yes. that whatever he said just felt like it was the character saying it. And it would just be nice to, to know, I'll just believe it anyway, that it was Sellers who decided that Quill should do that because he was just being Quill at that particular moment. Just filming me walking up the street. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. Um, do you want to take a moment to talk about Francis DeWolf? Yeah, well, yeah, I love Francis. <laughs> he's he's such a he's such a strange character, Francis DeWolf, and I don't mean a strange character, you know, in himself, but it's quite totemic, I think, of a time when films or you know telly or whatever had such room for so many different types of characters. You know, and people like Francis Wolfe could make a very healthy living, uh, you know, appearing in lots of different things. Uh, and I suppose I'm comparing it, you know, in a fogeyish way. Well, I'm a fogey. You know, everybody, lots of actors now, they're very, I think they're very much of a stamp, you know, they're weirdly athletic. 
Yeah. And they tend to be tend to be young or younger. Yeah. Younger. Not everybody. Obviously, there are big stars who are older and all that sort of thing. But the, but we're not talking about stars. Uh, and there just seems to be an endless procession of these sort of cut young guys or beautiful young women who appear in everything. I'm sure, you know, I'm not decrying what they can do. Some are good and some are bad. Just the same of every age. Mm. But there just seemed at the time in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, there just seemed to be so much room for so many weird and different and disparate looking characters. You know? Uh, where you could have Francis Wolf, who was this enormous, he was enormous Francis Wolf. Yeah, yeah. With a huge bushy beard and eyebrows. Like an early Brian Blessed. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a sort of cross between Brian Blessed and uh, James Robertson Justice. Yes, yes, yes. You know, that sort of big bluff mm. uh, kind of character. And he appears, in, he was in things like sitcoms right up until the 70s. Well, I noticed, uh, I noticed that I looked at his filmography because I'm aware of him mainly from the Hand of the Baskervilles film, mm. Carry On Cleo. Yeah. Um, Triple Cross, which is a film I very much enjoy. And, yep. but I, I didn't know him from much else, to be honest. He, but he was one of those faces that you, you recognize. Um, but he appeared as the tutor to Archie in an ITV hour long special. Of educating Archie. Oh wow! Is that is that that is that 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 one? I've never seen it where the that really creepy footage. <laughs> oh come on! No, don't know of a this. live action of a live action Archie is, is from. You know, have you never seen it? You're not so thinking like Peter of Bruff. you're not thinking of uh, magic with Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> no, no, honestly, it is as creepy. Right. So, like, you, you well, you, you know what? You know Educating Archie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With Peter Bruff. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Bruff. Right, right, right. right. Now, Peter Bruff was really in no technical sense of ventriloquist. No, no. <laughs> yeah. He, he, also, he often, he actually looked like Sandy Powell doing his ventriloquist sketch. <laughs> you know, uh, and, uh, oh, but obviously massively successful on radio and, you know, we've got him to thank for everybody from, you know, Hattie Jakes to Tony Hancock to Max Bagley. My fa- sorry to my favourite Sandy Powell ventriloquist bit. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard it for years, but he's 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 got the puppet, he's got the dummy, and he and he says <laughs> Sandy Powell says to the dummy, "Where do you come from?" The puppet goes. <laughs> Sandy Powell says, I was trying to say Czechoslovakia. I should have said Leeds. <laughs> it's such a great sketch, that. Where it's just even the way if he sits up there and says, Well, my little man. <laughs> and when when uh, Margaret Powell comes on, Hmm. And he's and and he says something. He says something like, <laughs> "And what is it?" She she says, uh, "Oh yes, I'm a vegetarian too." <laughs> and he says, "What? <laughs> what?" She says, "Well, I'm I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. That's my belief." And he says, "Well, I'm a ventriloquist." And she says, "Yeah, that's your belief." <laughs> and when he, and but then when he argues with her, 
Yeah. He puts his hand right through the dummy and is pointing, holding the head. <laughs> and the dummy. Oh, it's, it's such a great sketch. Yeah. <laughs> well, my little man. Now tell me, are you going to sing for the ladies and gentlemen? I say, will he sing anything by request? Oh, sing anything by request? Will he? As long as I know it, he'll sing it. <laughs> well, will he sing something for me? For you, certainly. Oh, good. Out of Mary Poppins. Yes. You know the one. <laughs> Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> if he does, he'll sing it by himself. Anyway. Yeah, no, no, so Educating Archie, the live one. So I've only ever seen this in clip form, uh, which is sort of used to illustrate, like, uh, how bad it was. can't even remember what clip show it was in. But it's basically, it looks like a person, or like a, or the dummy's sitting in a chair, mm. and it's got Archie's head, but, like, real, somebody's put their arms through, and it's got real arms. And the hands are moving, and it is so freakish. Oh dear! I wonder. I wonder if that's where that came from. Right in, folks. We were talking about the. Anyway. we were talking about the telegoons the other day, and oh, yeah. uh, which which I'm sure you're familiar with. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I'm aware of the work. Uh, whenever the, whenever there's a scene, a close-up scene needed of someone shuffling cards, it's actually proper human yeah. hands, obviously, which yeah. um, which really takes you out of the drama. Yeah, <laughs> the drama. <laughs> because up till that point, the verisimilitude had been a staggering. Yeah. But, but sorry, uh, yeah, uh, I Francis mean, in term, Francis DeWolf, I mean, in terms of credits, is so desperate as much as even in the 70s. Let like me give you two credits. He was in, off the top of my head, uh, an episode of the totally forgotten but excellent series, The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yes, I've seen that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brilliant! It's the it's the episode about the uh, anonymous letters, right. where he plays the uh, the head of the Frankenburg Theatre, and on the other hand, he plays a supermarket owner in an episode of the and Dearest. <laughs> oh Jesus! Oh, I don't, don't I, oh. I wouldn't hear a word against Nearest and Dearest. Joe Gladwin in his dentures. Oh, it's such a great series. I love that yeah. show. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to convince you. And Joe Gladwin especially is fantastic in it. Mm. His delivery is extraordinary. There's a brilliant there's a brilliant little bit where you know it's one of these things where uh, a very seventies trope uh, where they they think he's won the pools. Mm. So somebody they think somebody thinks somebody's won the pools but they actually haven't. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they're nice to them, you know. Yeah. Happens a lot. <laughs> And uh, Nelly and Eli are sitting reading the paper. They're going, oh, look at this. Apparently, somebody's won, you know, somebody's won the pools, are like £150,000. They live around here. So I wonder who that could be. Oh, that's, imagine having all that money. And the door goes, <laughs> and Joe Gladwin, Stan walks in, and he's smoking a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, I need to use your phone. I need to use your phone later. It's a very private call. Hush, hush. <laughs> it's a very important call. And he said, "When did? How long have you been smoking cigars?" He said, "I smoked my first cigar in 1918. <laughs> this is my second. This is my second. <laughs> anyway, Francis, they, they they go to they go to Paris to try and sell their pickles, and Francis Dubuff is 
you know, there. And, oh, it's, it's hilarious how Hilda Baker goes into the... He, she goes to the toilet, says hobbies and fennies, and she goes into the wrong one. <laughs> and she comes running out going, whoa, what a big fella. And out comes Francis DeVille. Uh, it's hilarious. Oh, you can groan all you like. One day I'm going to start a, one day I'm going to start a Hilda Baker podcast. I think. Oh well, I'll, I'll be there for that. Mm. Great women, anyway. But it's, I mean, but to be honest, as we say, we're saying earlier about for, for a film of this type, the smallest show that actually has a very limited cast. Uh, you know, in 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 principal roles and useful roles. Yeah. Because there really only is in the grand there's Stringer Davis and and and, uh, and Francis De Wolf. There's Bill McKenna. Yep. Rutherford Miles and Sellers. And then there's a few people round. Oh, and there's round. there's Robin Carter, the solicitor played by Leslie Phillips, of course. And Leslie Phillips, yeah. But for a film of this type at that time, that's a very limited cast. It is. It is. Normally there would be dozens of people mm. you know, working with and as we said, Sid James appears for like he gets very high billing. He does. He's a very good agent. For what he's, for what he's given to do, yeah. His agent um, is, I imagine, probably like Lou, you know. Yeah, yeah, from the, from the goons. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a lovely boy for you. You're going to make a fault. <laughs> but you, the one dark moment of das- yeah, dastardly dastardliness need. is because Hardcastle's desperate and he's told that... Well, he's desperate to shut down the bijou essentially yeah. and yeah. and he's told that, that quill has signed the pledge yeah so he comes up with this idea to sabotage the next film showing he sends a bottle of whiskey to quill inside a was a box yeah. of film reels a box of newsreel um, yeah and then and this is the thing i wrote this down here so obviously they've cranked up the heating again yeah and quill's sweating cobs yeah. Um, and he keeps staring longingly at this bottle of whiskey in the first aid box. Yeah. Um, but whis- whiskey wouldn't quench you first, would it? <laughs> well, it would, if you're a, it would if you're an alcoholic. <laughs> well, maybe. There's a bottle of, and a bottle of Dewar's White Label as well. It's no rubbish. Yeah. I'm not a whiskey uh, expert. Is, it, is, that, is that proper good stuff, is it? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's not rock up. Okay. And it's also, it's also not made up, which is weird. Oh, you know, you yeah. think it would just be like McLaverty's whiskey or something. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but no, no, they use an actual proper, mm. uh, a proper brand. I wonder if that's just for a bit of brand awareness for the audience to go, oh, look, and it's you know, he's not going to turn down a drink of that. No. Uh, but to be fair, there is one other des- dastardly deed when old Tom burns down the ground. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, the possible loss of life. <laughs> that, I couldn't I get over that. We seem we seem to have drawn a discreet veil over that. I don't. I can't get because, over that because 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 we're right at the end of the film. We're near the end of the film, and 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 Jean's yeah. discovered she's pregnant very discreetly yeah. on screen. Is told yeah. that she's pregnant, as is Marlene, Sid James's daughter. Yeah, as is the cat. As uh, yeah, and there's a there's a suggestion. Sid James is, is dropping heavy hints that he thinks that um, Bill McKenna yeah, Bill Bill is the father. Yeah. Never that, yeah. that never gets resolved, but no. um, but they've decided that they're going to cut the losses because she's pregnant. They're going to take the seven hundred and fifty quid that that Hardcastle yeah. has offered for the Bijou, and um, and Matt sort of laughingly says that there's been times that he's wanted to burn the grand down, and old, and Tom, old Tom, yeah, he takes this literally. <laughs> He's sitting in the basement next to all this fuel oil, 
It's mm. a very British thing, fuel oil. <laughs> and thinks, and he's going, you see the struggle in his face, thinking, well, uh, well no, no, fuck it. Don't, mm. Sorry. That's right. Yes, I will. Yes, I will. And then they wake up, and then during the night, he thinks the alarm's gone off, Bill McKenna, and he puts it off. Somehow, he hasn't been woken by the enormous cinema about 100 yards away, <laughs> <laughs> burning down overnight. And he gets up in the morning in the grand a party. And uh, which, of course, means that Hardcastle, they now only, they have only, the only cinema in town. And uh, Hardcastle needs to keep his pictures going or whatever he needs to do. So they come and buy the buy Jew for 10 grand. 200,000 uh, in today's money. Yeah, huge amount of mm. money. And then they, Bill McKenna, they clear off. <laughs> but they give they, uh, they give a cut to the, the three. They they get a bomb, but they also insist that they must be kept on in their jobs. Mm. Everybody's happy. Mm. And at the last second, as they're waved off, old Tom says to Bill McKenna, I like you, Mr. Spencer, and I like your missus. It was the only way, wasn't it? Yes. Goodbye. Bye-bye. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. And then they have a moment of crisis where they think they're going to do something about it and then they don't do anything about it. Yeah. The cinema, the cinema burning down is what you would, I think you call in screenwriting terms, it's time to finish this picture now. <laughs> right. Well, I couldn't reconcile this. Ending. No, because because and I didn't mind the ending. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's, quite, right, yeah. it's quite a neat little ending. So Matt, mm. Matt I'll, I'll give, give them their proper names. Matthew, this is Matthew, isn't it? Matthew and Jean on the train. So yep. they they Matt Matt works out that Tom's words meant or suggested that he was the artist, yes. and they yes. and they both sort of experience con- a, a pang, pang of guilt, guilt and uh, the pangs of conscience, and uh, yeah, they debate whether they should. Uh, act on it and should they first of all they say should we go back and confront him yep nah. no 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 and then they say well no okay when we get to the station or next station we'll phone him yep nah. and then he goes well okay no we'll write him a very stern letter <laughs> yeah. and we did we did write to him we sent him a postcard from Samarkand <laughs> Oh, one other thing I noticed, which slightly annoyed me. Don't know why. Uh-huh. Irrational annoyance. Three quarters of the way through the film, and suddenly we have narration, and it's Gene. Yes, no, that's a funny thing, isn't it? I noticed that. I'd never noticed it before. Mm. In a sort of Blade Runner way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're like, is there, is there like, are there multiple cuts in a Ridley Scott version <laughs> way? Is it going to turn out that Quill was a replicant all along? <laughs> But the the uh, yeah no the narration suddenly appears halfway through. It's clearly something that's been you know there and not used and then suddenly used. Yeah, it's just an outcome of how they edit it. I think it is a it is a funny thing because you don't need it. But wh- any more than you need it in Blade Runner. You frankly. don't. You don't. Well, what puzzled me? Sorry, getting back to the the arson. arson yeah. About, what puzzled me about this ending was that. As you well know, yeah. During this period, films were not allowed to have endings where a wrongdoer profited or got away with it. Yeah, and I know it's a sympathetic character doing something mm. that 
um, makes our heroes profit, I suppose. But at the end of the day, he's still burnt down a cinema. But I wonder, I wonder if it's because you don't actually see him do it. Is there meant to be dubiety about whether he did it or not? I mean, there isn't, but is there meant to be? Mm. But at the same time, it's one deed paying off another. You know, they mm. get they, they they sabotage their business, so he sabotages their business. Maybe that's the trade off. I, I I think it is a bit it's a bit contrived, and mm. because I feel that I I certainly think that what's happened is they get to they get to a certain point in the action, and it's like how do we finish this? Because the Bijou's doing fine. You know, yeah. <laughs> the grand's doing fine. Everyone's you know, happy. Everybody's fine. Yeah, they're making a living. The the, the staff are happy. People are coming to the pictures. Uh, all right, she's going to have a baby. But uh, it's, what's so bad about having the baby and, and living in the Bijou Kinema? Because apparently, it's all right to have it in Samarkand. That's true. It was where is that? It was Uzbekistan or somewhere. Well, it's it's not somewhere near a general hospital. That's a fact. <laughs> but anyway, you know, so maybe that's why they got away with it. So the ending, I, I, I'd say, it's a wee bit contrived, but it's good fun. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what what I think is 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 also interesting about the the the, the flow of the action is once Quill has got drunk or he's been made drunk or whatever. Very little of him in the film after that. He, he disappears, and we're told he's in his room. And he won't come out, mm. and then you don't see him again until the very end, where he sort of limps his way back into the cinema, the cinema, uh, and then there's the sort of the, you know there's the denouement. Yes. So he's you know I don't know why that is. Uh, the, I know there were scheduling issues around the film because. Apparently, Margaret Rutherford couldn't be insured. So I believe. Mm. Uh, so they they had her only for I think a week to minimise the I suppose the possibility of her dropping dead or being killed. <laughs> so there must have been problems with you know getting people together at different times. And as you say, Sellers was phenomenally busy at this time. Yeah. So maybe he had to nip off to do, a, you know, do record a couple of good shows. <clears throat> And uh, you know, appear at the the old empire or something. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, can I just read? I just wanted to read something that Roger Lewis writes about this film. Okay, because he's Roger Lewis is a big fan of Smaller Show on Earth. Indeed, and he talks about the three staff. Yeah. Um, so he writes, um, Quill, Fazakali, and Old Tom don't walk in and out of their scenes in cuppy holes. They seem to shimmer, disembodied, from the other side of mottled mirrors. They're at one with the dust and flecks of paint and shadowy alcoves. Lovely. Yeah, that's very, it's very apposite because you could almost, you, you could see a version of this film. You know, say it was nothing to do with the grand or whatever. Say they had just inherited the building. Mm. You could you can absolutely see a version of this film where old Tom, Quill and Fizakley are ghosts. Mm. Yeah. 
yeah. because they barely exist outside of it. You see Quill walking up the road and you see Tom uh, going to the a cafe. cafe. Yeah. Where because, you know, because to push the action along, yeah. he, uh, he he overhears that it's they're only pretending to open it as he tells the commissioner at the Grand, yeah. you know, and so George that Cross, by the way, his name is the actor. Really? George Cross. I wonder if his wife's called Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you could you could absolutely believe that uh, the scene with the silent film could be a silent film being projected, and there being three ghosts there. Uh, you know, in an alternate version of yeah, the smallest show on earth. Well, let me just because the. They exist within the, the cinema. They, they they barely exist beyond it. Yeah. Well, R- Roger goes on to say, um, we can only guess at the reverberations the smallest show on earth set off in Sellers personally. The end of the roadie building with its chill and damp and the feeling it emanated of come and gone entertainment and tat is Elfricum oh. and all the other reconstituted decaying vaudeville venues of his youth come back, as it were, to haunt him. But although Quill is tetchy, snappy, there is no bitterness, only nostalgia. The, the truth in that mm. is, the, is the silent scene. Mm-hmm. Because what Quill wants is just for it to go on the way it had always gone on and for it to exist forever. Yeah. He, he, you know, he, he, all right, he complains about the rats and... The machinery, the you know, the comedy projection machinery. Yeah. <laughs> the lovely touches when he pulls down a big gauge and it gives him a terrible shock. <laughs> but it also does it to Bill Travers, <laughs> which means it's been doing it for decades. But it's just the way it is. Yeah. You know, you don't repair anything. He'd complain if it didn't do it. Yeah, you don't repair things. Mm. You just work around them. Mm. You don't replace physically Quill and Tom. You just incorporate them and work around them because they're just part of the existence of the place. Uh, and it's it's what elevates the film is the three of them playing those characters. Because if they'd been played by three other actors who might have been perfectly good, you know. Hmm. But they, I doubt they would have resonated in the same way. And like like uh, Lewis says, the set that they built, you can imagine it taking, you know, just raising Sellers' eyebrows a bit. Yeah. This looks very like, uh, you know, uh, theatre, you know, the, the Theatre Royal Accrington. Yeah. Uh, and having to ha- put your shoes up in case the rats got across them and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Being dragged around and, and, and uh, Bill sitting playing the piano in the pit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. Totally. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's it's a singular film in the in the sort of Sellers canon. Because as we've, as we've discussed, it doesn't have that hard edge of the sort of bolting messages. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't have the sort of uh, schmaltz of... Other things, or, or the, or frankly, the stupidity of things like the mouse that roared, which is a deeply stupid film. 
But somehow it would be better to take the world's most destructive bomb and let it be looked after by the little nations. So we'll give it to North Korea then, will we? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking schmucks. So, uh, so yeah, uh, it, 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 it's it's uh, yeah, it's a great film. It, it's but I, I, I again, I think it's I think it resonates with me particularly. I'm sure it does with a lot of people because of that sense of what cinema used to be. What the, not cinema actually, because that's a very Mark Cousins thing. It's a, it's a very. Hang on, hang on, Mark Cousins or, or Mark Kermode? or Mark Cousins? No, Mark, the, no, Mark, no, Mark Cousins. No, no, because critic. Because Mark Cousins um, was on this show last week, but a different Mark Cousins. <laughs> no, that, not that one. Right, okay. No, no, I'm talking about the film critic. Okay, who talks, <laughs> yeah. who talks cheerfully and is friends with Tilda Swinton. It talks about <laughs> films. No, no, no. <laughs> No, I'm talking about the resonance that the pictures have. It, the, I, I, and the, the, it's a particular thing. It's the pictures. Mm. Going to the films or going to the pictures, and it's referred to within the show, the, the, great, the smaller show on Earth, as the pictures. And the experience of going to the pictures in that way, even at the grand, let alone the bijou, is gone. I mean, it, it, it lingered on for a long time and then COVID killed it. Because now going to the cinema, actual cinema, for a start, is wildly expensive. Yes, it is. Uh, it is. Cripplingly. Uh, it's cripplingly expensive to the, to the extent that I don't really understand certainly how families can afford to go. No, no. no. So that it's become something more of an event because films are also the films that are shown are also paraded as events because like, there's marvel films and things like that mm. they're not just films they're episodes of sagas instead of nipping out to the pictures for the night for you know yep even bond films are not episodes of a saga well they were until they got right miserable but when you went to see view to a kill <laughs> You just went to see a fun Bond film. Well, kind of fun. Well, it's fun at the start with <laughs> Patrick McNee and all that. Until they start machine gunning people, that's yeah. against a bit much. Yeah. However, the experience of going to the, the pictures, which was a which was a sort of a, a, a collective uh, memory or a collective experience in the sense that it was the same for everybody. There weren't at the time, you know, there was, as I say, there was the Odeon, the ABC, and there was the local flea pits. But it didn't matter who you were. If you wanted to go to the pictures, that's where you went. No matter how well off you were or where you were from. And you would go to the pictures and you would sit in a stall and you could be sitting next to somebody from a completely different social grouping. Because you just went to the pictures. Yes. But that doesn't exist anymore. Because now there are swanky cinemas where you sit on couches and have your dinner served to you. And as we see, even... Vibrating even, seats and all sorts. Vibrating seats, all sorts of things. But they're expensive and it's an event and it's so forth. And it's just not the collective uh, experience. And I say collective, not in the sense of the people in the hall, 
but a shared common experience, I should say. A common experience for everybody. Just doesn't really exist anymore. Okay, you know, if you go to an Odeon or whatever, other cinemas are available. In a regular way, okay, it's probably, you know, you go to, you sit down, whatever. But it's just, it's just not the same. No. And what you see on this on the smallest show on Earth, ironically, 66 years ago, is a memory of what this going to the pictures used to be like. But what we watch when we watch the smallest show on Earth is a memory of what the pictures used to be like since then as well. Because mm. it existed for a long time. And it kind of doesn't exist anymore. And, it, you know, when the last Ticket-O-Matic punched out and the last young lassie, and that's not sexist, that's what they were, <laughs> stood with a tree of king cones during an intermission. Mm. You know, mm. it just it's just, that's kind of, that's kind of all gone. Thankfully, you get to see it in films like The Smallest Show on Earth. And it's probably why the shot that's used from it so much crops up so often, which is when Quill turns on the projector yeah. and then looks down the lens yeah. at the audience. Everybody knows what's going on. Thanks again to Chris. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed this week and last week's conversation. Uh, if you like the sort of long form chats that, that that we have about you know films like this, um, split over a couple of episodes, please let me know. Um, or if you would prefer just a really mega length single episode, you know, two hours plus, uh, I'd also consider doing that from time to time. I will be back next week. I think next week we are going to be talking about All Being Well, the recent uh, Sky Arts documentary uh, from last year about Spike Milligan, which um, which went down very well. And it's myself and uh, a veteran podcaster, actually, uh, Simon Meddings from the Waffle On podcast. So hopefully that will be next week. If not, it will be something else. Um, but that's what's in the schedule. So uh, it only remains for me to say thank you for listening. Take care of yourselves. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>